0: Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to The Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. On this episode of The Original Guide to Men's Health, we'll be exploring the interesting interface of science, biomechanical devices, and biomaterials (laughs) with Dr. Chris Bettinger, Dr. Christopher Bettinger is a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in the Department of Material Science and Engineering and Biomedical Engineering. He directs the Laboratory for Biomaterials-Based Microsystems and Electronics at Carnegie Mellon University, which designs materials and interfaces that integrate medical devices with the human body. Chris has published over 90 articles it has been issued over 10 patents. Chris has received honors, including the MIT Tech Review TR35 Top Young Innovator Under 35 and the DARPA Young Investigator Award. Dr. Bettinger, welcome to the original Guide to Men's Health, and thank you for joining us for this episode. Why don't you give a little background, first of all, of what you do at Carnegie Mellon?
1: Yeah. Yeah, sure. Thanks, much. It's a pleasure. So I'm a professor of biomedical engineering and material science at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And really my mission is that of teaching. So I teach classes. I also run a research group where my grad students and I research new concepts in medical devices for applications in largely gut health, essentially. That's the unifying theme.
0: So you have specialty in materials, neural interfaces, You know, this audience is going, well, what are we listening to? And what I thought was that we would present some research that hopefully would turn into some devices. I think the most obvious kind of interface that people wear around are Fitbits or their Apple Watch that can give them an EKG and monitor their sleep health. And there are so many other devices that are being developed that people are unaware of. So I wanted to use this as an opportunity for people to kind of go, oh man, that is really neat. So what is of interest in your lab and and in your life that you would like people to know about that you're allowed to talk about?
1: There's a lot of interesting threads there. I think the most exciting theme maybe that to sort of to showcase today is that interfacing new kinds of technology and devices with humans is critical, right? So it's oftentimes the interface is the critical barrier to maximizing the utility of a given technology. And so if you think about it very broadly in a very concrete example, think about you interacting with your cell phone, right? So oftentimes that's the rate limiting step, right? The amount of bits per second you can put into your cell phone, right? So we think about that same concept, but more in a sort of a material centric lens, right? So think about again uh, your smart watch like you said Rich. so basically you know the like form factor right the size the geometry the interface right that's all constraining the use cases where it can provide value to the consumer right it's constraining you know aspects of pulse oximetry data again there's that fundamental concept of really it's the interface it's the form factor that governs the utility of medical devices more broadly
0: Many people have had some sort of monitoring where they either had to go to the doctor's office or to a lab specifically, the cardiology lab or the radiology lab and have an echo or had to wear a monitor while they were in a hospital or in a clinic. Then devices where, well, there's monitors that can be taken home, but they were still sort of bulky. The pulse oximeter you mentioned, it goes on a finger and it actually sends a light through and it gets a reading of the oxygen saturation in the blood. And, you know, it's become miniaturized and become take-home. I actually have a friend who owns one. <laughs> I said, you can get that on your own now. So I think, you know, this is all brought to us via labs such as yours, where people are working on devices and miniaturization and making things more affordable, compactable, and giving valuable data and saving the population from having to go to an actual specific site, such as a lab, a doctor's office, or the hospital.
1: That's right. And so I think there's two other kind of like threads there that are interesting. One is, as you mentioned, which is the form factor. So if you're trying to make a device, that's going to merge seamlessly with curved tissue, right? So we're organic forms with natural curvilinear dimensions like your wrist, right? Or your head, right? Your skull, right? So these are all very very challenging form factors to to integrate devices with, right? So there's two ways around that, right? One is, as you expressed correctly, you can miniaturize something, so you can make it so small, it doesn't matter that that sensor is interfacing with a curved surface, because at the level it cares about, it's effectively flat, right? So that's one strategy. The other thing is to make devices that are flexible, right? And so I think that really kind of is a touch point with some of the research teams in my group, right? And that's basically making flexible electronics. And so this extends beyond medical applications, but just in general, the idea is to take electronic devices that are typically rigid, brittle, planar, like think about your cell phone or a laptop, and how do you endow that device with new kinds of materials that now allow it to be bendable and foldable and even stretchable in some cases. And so it turns out a lot of those challenges end up being materials-based challenges. So new kinds of materials that can support the function of electronic devices, but in a really exotic kind of material space or in an exotic environment, like the skin, right? Where you're sweating, there's oils, it's very complicated chemistry, right? So how can you think about bringing the very interesting concepts and materials to sort of enable, again, that kind of harmonization with devices, with the human body? That's kind of like another kind of thought that drives our work.
0: Are you allowed to give a little background into maybe some of what you're working on, so there's some specifics, like how would you take a biomaterial that bends and stretches, and what application clinically could it be used for?
1: Yeah, sure. So one technology that that we've published on and and we're still we're still pushing is the idea of making electronics not just soft or stretchable, but what we call ultra compliance, right? And so you can think about it this way. So think about items around your house where you might have like a metal pot, right? So that's like the ultimate in rigidity, right? Steel, it's rigid, it's brittle, right? Now think about like a rubber band, right? So that's kind of flexible, extensible a little bit. You can probably curve that around your skin, but it turns out there's applications where you may want to be even, more compliant than that. You want to have something that's more like jello, right? And so if it's something like jello, then you can imagine integrating sensors with this really soft device that's maybe not going to affect the function of tissue at all, right? So maybe you could sort of chemically disguise it from the immune system, or you could potentially have a really compliant device that's not going to alter the mechanics of the thing you're trying to sense, right? So so there's some interesting applications we can go into the details, but basically the idea of ultra compliance, right? And really canonically, the only way to get to ultra compliance is to have a material that's not really a material at all. It's instead it's like mostly water. And so we call that class of materials hydrogels, right? And so basically, you know, we develop some concepts using some bio-inspired materials from nature that we essentially impregnate some interesting hydrogels with new kinds of chemistry that allow us to integrate really sensitive electronic components in this sea of water and salt and really ultra compliant network. And it's a really harsh environment for electronics to work in, but we're kind of working to basically have processes and materials where we can have really thin electronics in this really soft, sticky hydrogel sort of structural material. And so that enables new kinds of concepts and new kinds of sensing platforms that we're exploring. And so one example is that for example, we're using these really soft sticky hydrogels that have these embedded electronic sensors in them and we can use them to actually monitor neuronal activity from the spinal cord and so that's kind of an interesting concept. so the idea basically is you can basically like attach these sensor arrays to the surface of the spinal cord and get really interesting data that you know about pain management and about you know like spinal cord function, but in a way that's not going to sort of alter the mechanics of the spinal cord and w- without sticking something into the tissue, right? Like a probe, right? So we're avoiding that as well. So that's kind of an interesting, like guess, example that kind of brings in all these different concepts that we've been discussing here today.
0: Yeah, I see electroencephalograms where people are wearing like a helmet of electrodes, but actually have embedded electrodes in certain instances that would pick yeah. up brain activity. That's right.
1: And that's actually kind of funny. That's one of our possible use cases too. So you're talking about basically, you know, like EEG. If anyone's had an EEG, it's more and more common these days, it's just kind of for fun and whatever. But you know, that's a great example, right? Because that's a large area, right? Trying to monitor very faint signals, and to accommodate that, they basically they take basically these metal electrodes. They put this kind of goo on them, which is like a sodium, uh, sorry, a salt-like containing gel, and they just just carefully place these electrodes down all over the brain and they can slip and they move and the gel's messy and things like that. Right. But in our kind of like really compliant adhesive electrode array, we can put all those electrodes into one kind of like, you know, potentially one kind of like cap and just stick it on in place and everything will stay in place. And you can record EEG much more reliably in a much more streamlined way than, you know, pacing like individual electrodes on the scalp. So that's just another example of, of the bottleneck of an interface.
0: Uh, No, I'm just sitting here as you're speaking, going through, well, I know that a lot of researchers are using the MRI for brain activity and see what lights up so we can find out what part of the brain controls what and putting people, having them read things and what is memory versus other brain functions. But if you had some ability to pick up the neural interface directly, you could find that as well.
1: Yeah, another thing is, it's kind of cool about that EEG theme is also EEG during sleep, right? So if, if you want to think about, you know, dream and sort of you know c- conscious dreaming, right? There's all these interesting science or neuroscience questions, right? But if you have a cap, they're sleeping and they're moving around and the electrodes shift and you're getting weird signals and the gel dries out and you can't, it doesn't work for more than a couple hours. All these like really kind of silly practical problems, but those are the pinch points, right? We can solve those with maybe with new materials, new concepts, then you can unlock, you know, new experimentation and sort of demystify like lots of cool concepts in the nervous system and and beyond.
0: Of course, you're talking about just a receiver, but you could have an amplifier to send out to an interface to a device. So now all of a sudden we have quote mind control of devices. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's just fascinating what can happen
1: yeah sorry that the dangerous path of uh, bi-directionality yeah yeah so right. <laughs> uh, you
0: mentioned GI or gastrointestinal projects to give us a little background on how that would work
1: kind of like a strategic decision for us too and one realization again is as a materials engineer working in the medical space what we find is oftentimes we run into practical limitations due to regulatory concerns right so the number of new materials that are used in new devices is pretty small right so it's not often you can just you know conceive an exact, exact new material and expect it to ever be in humans right and so then that's fine i think that's good we need to protect people and make sure things are safe before we uh go uh, sort of on these wild goose chases right you know, as we're working in this neural space one thing that came up was like well we know that you know there's neurons all over your body and you're obviously concentrated in your brain, like 90 billion neurons in your brain. But it turns out in your gut, there's also hundred million neurons, right? And those are organized into complex networks and they have sort of localized computational functions. They can, there's sensory right, feedback, there's, you know, mechanosensation, sensation, right? There's sensing nutrients. And so this is really, I think it's the third brain or the second brain, I forget. But basically the gut is like the third brain, right? So our idea is like, well, there's a whole other world out there where you could potentially be interfacing with these neurons in the gut. And so that's kind of like a question, like what if you could interface with those neurons in a reliable way? And so we're developing technologies where we're potentially doing that. And so, you know, the, the idea is then that kind of interface, like, well, what would that look like, right? So maybe it's a pill, maybe it's something else, maybe it has some interesting new materials that then enable that kind of interface, right, this reliability interface with the neurons in the gut, but maybe they're made from materials that we're already eating anyway, right? Like, what if you can make an electronic device that's basically made of Food. Then you kind of skirt around the whole regulatory issue, and you can focus on some interesting scientific questions and maybe therapies in the future. So all that work is pretty embryonic at this point.
0: What information can you get from the gut besides just neural? But could you get information regarding health status of the gut? You know, what's the norm versus what's not norm, and you know, have some interfaces that give us alerts when something is happening that shouldn't be happening in the gut. That would be amazing.
1: Yeah, we have this uh, this phrase of, I have a gut feeling, right? That's a real thing, right? So that, that bi-directional communication between the brain and your gut, you know, through the vagus nerve, that is a widely studied, you know, like very exciting dimension of neuroscience. I think that's probably been understudied to now. That's kind of, gaining more traction.
0: I'm sure I could find a GI expert who could explain satiety, you know, when you feel full, when do you feel hungry, what explains that, what substitutes, what disease states need to be, have this sensation bolstered or this sensation sequestered and amazing. What else can you give a little insight into that might be interesting for the future?
1: Gut health, to me, gut health is interesting. And again, I think it's totally underappreciated. I mean, you know, like 20 years ago, you probably would hear very little about the idea of gut health, you know, even the microbiome, right? But now it's kind of coming to the forefront. And there's really some interesting diagnostic dimensions, I think, as you mentioned earlier, and and the interesting therapeutic dimensions as well. And so, you know, so one example is again, it's like leaky gut, right? So what is leaky gut, right? We can sort of hand wave our way through like what that means. And maybe it's basically a sort of like, you know, nanoscale perforation of the lining of your gut that's leading to sort of you know, sort of like unregulated immune responses to bacteria in your gut, you know, something, something, it's kind of all hand-wavy, very but what if we could have devices that could sort of measure physical properties of the gut where you could get quantitative measurements of that disease state, right? So we could, you know, imagine if you're getting just like, you know, what's your blood glucose level? What if you could get that same kind of quantitative lens on what is now just a sort of a a very semi-qualitative, like, disease descriptor right so things like that are kind of interesting to me again getting a little more you know kind of just having the field mature from just kind of sort of hand wavy diagnosis to sort of quantitative figures of merit where you could then assess the health or disease state of the gut specifically so things like that are interesting to me and then on the therapeutic side of course like drug deliveries is a cool idea like what if there's you know a lot of times there's drugs that only are absorbed at certain parts of the gut, or maybe you, know, you take a pill and it delivers the drug everywhere, but maybe that's not what you want. Maybe you want to deliver it to specific locations. And so by what we call like electrifying medicine, you could possibly be, you have more targeted delivery of therapeutics to sort of improve patient outcomes. So that's exciting to us as well. So, so lots of, lots of work to be done for sure.
0: Well, I'm sure that it's different for every application, but how would you describe from bench well concept to bench to clinical trials? I mean, what kind of process and how long does that take?
1: Yeah, so I think there's earlier in my career, I was more of a technology push kind of guy, and you could always just claim five to ten years, right? but I think I think what really has to happen is you almost have to like work backwards and think about like what are the reimbursement codes you could possibly draw upon or, you know, what is the stakeholder like? Is it big pharma? Right? If that's your stakeholder, could you possibly, <laughs> I'm not answering your question directly. Cause again, if you're thinking about technology push, right, you can always say five to 10 years, but without the actual stakeholder identification at the end, five to 10 years might as well be 500 to a thousand years. It doesn't matter. There's no, like nothing's going to get over that hump. Right. So we think of it, I mean, at least I think of it from like, who's the stakeholder? What would the value proposition of this technology be to that stakeholder? And I think where that's Clear, right? It can actually be pretty quick, right? So one example in this general space that we're talking about is a now sort of defunct company called Proteus. And they were basically a company out in the Bay Area, and they were using ingestible electronics to think about addressing the issue of Patient compliance of oral medications, and so in that case, they basically make these little these little devices that could sense when they were swallowed, and they could talk to your cell phone. Your cell phone, you know, tells your insurance company or whatever that you're taking your pills when you should, and you're being a compliant patient. That's all very good, and so in that case, like that was a huge problem. And then again, they partnered with Takeda Pharmaceutical, it's a Japanese pharmaceutical company, and so they're able to get into humans. They got approval. It all came together really quickly. That was actually like, you know, I want to say like probably ten years from like. Conception to you know, like in humans, and they actually had a product. But one of the trials they tried to do it kind of didn't improve compliance in the way that they thought it would, and so that led to sort of its it kind of got kneecapped a little bit <laughs> in terms of its momentum. But I guess my point is, like, when there's that obvious problem, there's stakeholders you can get things moving pretty quickly. I think at one point it actually was a unicorn in the sense that it had a billion dollar valuation. That is no longer true, I believe. But it could actually be five to ten years. <laughs>
0: You know, one of the advantages you have in a university is you can reach across departments and disciplines. And at the University of Washington, when Lee Hood came from Caltech, he was one of the first to take a graduate student from one department and sort of use them to pollinate, you know, oh, this is going on over in biomedical engineering and I'm in genetics and, you know, to go back and forth. And that cross-communication You know, you might have that neural interface we're talking about, talk to a biomechanical device as an artificial limb or somebody who is spinal cord injury and to make movement. You know, I mean, it's just fascinating.
1: Again, like UW, like every innovative institution, I think you can trace it back to, you know, one or two just visionaries that just said, we need to break down these administrative barriers. We need to think broadly to tackle these complicated interdisciplinary problems. And so, yeah, I think that's a great, a great example that you cite there.
0: Well, anything else you'd like to chat about? We're doing just short vignettes. I'd love to talk to you all afternoon. (laughs) But anything else that comes to mind?
1: Yeah, I think my wife is actually kind of a I always kind of screw up the name, but basically she's like a nutritional therapy practitioner NTP, I think it's what it's called. And so in her function as kind of like she advises clients on you know diet and gut health and thinks about the practical aspects of managing gut health through interventions like supplements and things like that. And so, you know, during our dinner conversations, it's always fascinating to see that our careers are kind of coming together and we have these interesting touch points about how to think about gut health and how to think of it practically, you know, as she does and kind of into more exotic kind of, you know, devices and therapies and things that may or may not ever come to materialize, right? So I guess I think when I talk to her and I see the patients that she interacts with and yeah, I think the thing about gut health too is there's a lot of people struggling out there with, you know, Crohn's disease, right? IBD. These are sort of hidden diseases. And I think it's, you know, back in the day, you're just like, oh, you're just, oh, just my stomach hurts, right? And then, but these are real debilitating clinical diseases. Again, I think they're underserved. I think it's getting better, but I think there's such a nice opportunity to think about, you know, improving people's quality of life with devices and sensors and things like that. So that's super exciting to me. That gets me up out of bed in the morning, every day to kind of come to the lab and see if we can just chart out a new path.
0: Well, those of us who eventually become the recipients of all your efforts, thank you. And your colleagues who go to work every day excited about developing something that will further us along. Well, thank you, Dr. Benton. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Rich. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, PhD. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The Original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the Society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidemen'shealth.com. to men's This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.